0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from The Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It is described by one commentator as the most systematic campaign of mass surveillance and mass oppression the world has ever seen, and the largest incarceration of an ethno-religious minority since the Holocaust. China's mass detention camps in Xinjiang province have been a source of international concern for some time, but the full extent of the programme being run there by the Beijing government came to light at the weekend through the latest exposé of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ. On Sunday, the ICIJ published The China Cables, the first leak of classified documents from within the Communist Party describing the internal workings of detention camps that hold over a million ethnic minority Muslims, and the technology deployed to monitor these communities within China and abroad. I'll be talking shortly to Peter Gough in China and to Colum Keane, the Irish Times journalist who is a member of the ICIJ and is our lead author on this story. But first this week, we're going to Dennis Staunton in London for the latest on the British election. It's now in its final two and a half weeks, and the question people are posing is, can anybody stop Boris Johnson? Dennis, when Theresa May got Parliament backing for a snap election in 2017, she started from a winning position, but subsequently blew it. So far, that hasn't happened with Boris Johnson. What's he doing differently? I think a few things. One is that
1: he's a better campaigner than she is. Uh, and so uh, he, he quite clearly enjoys himself out and about. Now, they keep him fairly well protected from, uh, you know, from, from dangerous uh, conditions. So, for example, he's doing very few leaders' debates He uh, interacts with the public normally just in fairly enclosed or kind of controlled environments. And he doesn't tend to uh, answer very many questions from journalists. So in that sense, he's protected to some extent. But nonetheless, he looks like a happy warrior on the uh, campaign trail. And people find him, I think, an exciting figure. He's a bit like a celebrity and people want to... um, you know They want to spot him, they want to see him. I was on the train with them going up to Telford on Sunday. And when we got off to change at Wolverhampton, it was amazing the number of people, members of the public, who took out their phones to take pictures of him. And it wasn't, I think, particularly a question of political allegiance, just that they were excited to see him, because he's such an unusual-looking person, apart from anything else. That's one thing. The other thing is that he didn't make a complete mess of the manifesto, which is what uh,
0: Theresa May did. And of course, then, as you were going up to Telford for the launch of the the Conservative Party Manifesto launch, and funny, one of the observations I heard make about that launch was the objective was to ensure that everybody would have forgotten what was in it by Monday.
1: Yes, and people mostly did. I mean, the one thing that uh, people were talking about for a day or two was the fact that uh, Boris Johnson was promising uh, 50,000 more nurses for the National Health Service. But it turns out that 19,000 of these are actually already nurses, but just they'd be nurses that wouldn't leave rather than uh, you know, rather than actually new nurses. But that blew over after a day or two. And so I think that uh, as far as he wanted the manifesto to get no attention, he succeeded. It got very
0: little attention. There's some talk, Dennis, of Boris Johnson's own seat um, being vulnerable, especially if other parties engage in tactical voting. Is that a serious prospect?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's within uh, the margin where if there was serious tactical voting, then uh, it, it's possible that uh, they could take his seat. Uh, What's not clear, though, is whether uh, the Liberal Democrats and Labour voters have got themselves round to uh, any kind of effective plan for tactical voting. And part of the problem is that uh, in many seats, they don't know which is actually the better candidate to back so you have the the liberal democrats going around basically saying uh you know using the results of the european parliament elections where they did very well and labor did very badly to say that they are the only people who can win the seat and then labor will say well look at what happened in the last general election labor was a couple of thousand votes away in whatever seat it is so they're the ones to back and so nobody uh, you know, i think part of the problem with tactical voting is that uh you know nobody is quite sure What is the best way to vote tactically? So uh, so, so Boris Johnson's seat is theoretically at risk, but (coughs) I think if he loses his own seat, they'll probably have lost the election anyway. So I think from what I understand is, in that sense, he wouldn't really care because he wouldn't want to be an opposition backbencher in any case.
0: Let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn for a moment, Dennis. How would you characterise his performance in the campaign to date? Well, he's performed reasonably
1: well insofar as uh, he's quite good at things like the leaders' debates, and he performed well in the Question Time special uh, last week, and uh, and also at his in his head-to-head debate with Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, he, he was he was quite effective, and so what you've seen in uh, you know throughout the campaign is a kind of a slow, steady rise of the Labour vote. What you've also seen is in some polls an improvement in Jeremy Corbyn's personal popularity from a very low base, but nonetheless it's an improvement. Movement. The problem is that uh, what has happened this week is that the chief rabbi has uh, written an article in The Times this morning saying that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not fit to be prime minister, he's not fit for high office because of the way he handled allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And uh, that uh, essentially what he said was that what Corbyn didn't understand was that this wasn't just a question of processes or procedures, it was actually a human problem. And, and what he was really accusing uh, Corbyn of was having a lack of empathy apart from anything else. And Jeremy Corbyn was speaking earlier today, launching. Um as it turns out, the uh, Labour Party's race and faith manifesto and said that anti Semitism was an absolutely vile thing and that it had to be stamped out and that he would uh, not tolerate it anywhere in the Labour Party. But I do think that this is going to be a problem for Corbyn because what you hear from Labour canvassers is that in the way that the IRA uh, associations and associations with Hamas and Hezbollah didn't cut through in the 2017 election, that the anti Semitism allegations and the and the criticism of his handling of them has cut through to voters and they're hearing it on the doorstep and they're also oddly enough hearing more about his past support for the IRA, and they believe that's partly because the uh, criticism of his handling of anti-Semitism has woken some voters up into the notion that there's something not quite right about him, and so they start uh, looking more closely into some of these other past associations. So I do think that this could be a, a, a quite important setback for Jeremy Corbyn's personal standing and consequently for Labour's performance.
0: Now, Dennis, the party leaders took part in a a BBC debate on Friday night and the Liberal Democrats leader, Joe Swinson, was perceived to have performed poorly in that debate, which sort of reflected the the campaign her party has had to date. Why do you think the party with the most clearly defined pro-Remain message is not doing better?
1: I think there are two things. I think, uh, first of all, that the uh, the proposal, their policy of actually revoking Article 50 and so cancelling Brexit in Parliament rather than going to a second referendum, it strikes even quite a lot of uh, remained supporters as being somehow unfair, that actually they think, you know, given that Brexit was decided by a referendum, it should be reversed by a referendum. So that uh, has made the Liberal Democrats look a bit extreme to some people. And the other problem, I think, is that they decided to put Jo Swinson at the centre of the campaign. She's, you know, at the centre of their party political broadcasts. Her picture is all over the side of their bus. And she is uh, a relatively new pop- uh, politician in terms of, you know, national, um, you know, you, know, you know, the of national prominence and she doesn't really seem to be performing very well insofar as that the more people see her the less they seem to like her and what you have seen is that the liberal democrats vote has been declining steadily throughout the campaign and they've really lost quite a lot of their support and they're now down below 15 percent in uh, in most polls and they you know it's partly a kind of a classic squeeze of small parties but i do think her own uh, poor
0: performance has a certain amount to do with it too and to come back then, Dennis, to the question I mentioned there at the outset, can, can anybody stop Boris Johnson? Do you think we'll see any change of approach from the Liberals, uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party in the latter stages of the campaign? I suppose I'm thinking of the tactical voting issue in particular. Will, will they come under more pressure now to really consider some kind of tactical voting arrangement?
2: Yeah,
1: I think what you were seeing over the last, say, 24 or 48 hours was a, a, a number of polls showing a tightening in the race. And there was a particularly a poll from Wales where the Conservatives were hoping to pick up about nine seats from Labour and it now looks uh, on the basis of this poll that they would only pick up four and even those four would be in doubt. And so uh, so there did appear to be an improvement in Labour's fortunes and a narrowing of the race. And I th- think you would have expected to see that uh, continuing over the next few days simply because the Conservatives have more or less wiped out the Brexit party so they've probably reached the height of where they're going to get to in terms of support. And, uh, and then what you might also see would be some kind of panic among Remainers where they think, how do we stop Boris Johnson? And the only way is actually to, if you're a Liberal Democrat, hold your nose and vote for Labour. And if you're a Labour, hold your nose and vote for the Liberal Democrats. And so you may see that happening. I, well, I suppose what I just wonder is the, you know, the, the longer term impact of the uh, chief rabbi's intervention. And Jeremy Corbyn will be facing an interview with Andrew Neil, who is, uh, the, you know, the, the, the toughest interviewer on British television uh, this evening at seven o'clock. And, it, it, you know, it will be important, I think, to see how he gets through that and, and how he answers those questions in anti-Semitism. And, uh, and so, so I think that, uh, you know, you, you could see some kind of narrowing. And once you, you know, really once the Conservative lead gets below about sort of six or seven percent, then uh, they really can't be sure of a majority. And that's where I think you could suddenly see the you know the, the contest
0: becoming more unpredictable again. Okay, so a lot to play for still. Dennis in London, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton in London. Well, I'm joined now in studio by Colin Keane one of the journalists responsible for the publication of The China Cables, the latest expose by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ, and on the line from Chengdu in China by Peter Goff. Peter, I'll come to you shortly, but Colm, can you begin by telling us about these camps? What do we know about them and how does somebody end up being in there?
3: Well, the camps are a new phenomenon that developed from, let's say, early 2017, as far as we know. Their response to terrorists or religious extremist sentiment in Xinjiang and really what's happening is anybody that the Chinese authority thinks might have strong uh, Islamic views and that can be something as simple as um, praying too often or uh, growing a beard and um, can come to the attention of the police authorities and therefore be uh, allocated to these camps. In fact, it could be something, something as simple as having a particular app on your phone that, that causes them concern, having the, 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 the name of an imam, you know, a, a Muslim religious leader uh, in your contacts list, or even having the phone number of a foreigner. And um, as far as we know, up to a million people, and quite possibly up to a million and a half people, uh, uh, have been put into or are still in these cabs. And these documents, them, they're, they're, they're known as the China Cables.
0: They give us an insight into how these camps are run and how they work. What are these documents and where do they come from?
3: They're all written by this man called Zhu Hailun. And he was the second most powerful uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, official in um, Xinjiang uh, in 2017. As the Communist Party were imposing their new ramped up campaign of repression and incarceration and imprisonment of people from ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. He was the boss of a committee in the province, which in turn oversaw uh, the state apparatus. So it was a party commission overlooking the police, internal security, the courts and so on. So one of the documents was written in 2017 in November. So at this stage, the the newly built camps would have been pretty jammed full of people. Foreign estimates are there were about possibly up to a million people incarcerated or interned at that stage. And that's a million from a population in Xinjiang? A population of of ethnic groups, ethnic people of about um, 10 million plus and an overall population of 21, 22 million. So uh, one in 10 of the ethnic population were in turn about half the population of the Xinjiang. However, maybe 30 years ago, there was very few Han Chinese. It was mostly ethnic people. So, you know, from there's been a lot of uh, migration there from other parts of China. But anyhow, so they were filling these camps up and there were concerns about how they run them and uh, how they were being run and concerns about outbreaks of disease. At this stage, they were very, the government was very intent on keeping them secret. So this document goes out to party chiefs across the province, which is an enormous uh, province, um, telling them things like you can't let anybody escape. If you're going into the quarters where, the stu- they call them students, where the students are, you don't bring a gun with you. They have to have video, working video that, that doesn't have any blind spots so you can see the people in the camps at all times. Uh, they must learn hand ch- uh, Mandarin. Um They must uh, show ideological transformation, which isn't being interpreted as loyalty to the state and to the party and disinclination to have religious beliefs and so on and so forth. They must be kept there for at least a year. They're given scores. They're um, not to be released until they've satisfactorily uh, undergone ideological transformation and so on. Now, the second bunch of documents were also written by the same man, uh, Zhu Hailun, who's been uh, suggested uh, in the United States should be subjected to uh, to um, sanctions for what he's done out there, and this was the oversight of the this really intensive uh, surveillance system that's been put in, put in place in Xinjiang, involving CCTV and facial recognition technology, and you know spies in every village and almost in every home, and people getting sent to these camps or sent to jail, um, depending, uh, you know, for the most ridiculous. Uh, type of uh, offences quote unquote One of the things I found most chilling Column, in the documents one of the instructions if you
0: like to staff was one you mentioned it there in passing and it was the, the direction to keep detainees under surveillance at all times maybe I'll just quote from it there was a direction there must be full video surveillance coverage of dormitories and classrooms Free of blind spots, ensuring that guards and duty can monitor in real time, record things in detail and report suspicious circumstances immediately. So, I mean, these people, they have no privacy at all from the moment they get up in the morning
3: to the moment they undress and go to bed. They're under surveillance. Absolutely. And it says in the document that every door has to be double locked and every door has to be opened and locked again every time every a person passes through it. It also has um, details exactly where people should be and what they should be doing at any time of every day. And they get scored, positively scored for complying with these directions and they get punished for not, for not um, complying with them. And they, they're, you know, they're crammed together uh, in these uh, overcrowded camps and according to one ex-detainee, um, they're told exactly how they should be lying in their beds and if they vary from that, um, they, they're again punished. Um, there was reference in the document to the, 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 the people running the camps had to avoid abnormal deaths um, that's been interpreted in two ways and not exclu- mutually exclusive. One is you to stop um, outbreaks of disease that lead uh, to deaths. And other is when you're torturing people or treating them roughly, don't do so to the extent that you kill them. And, and what has stood out for you in, in the documents? Well, what's, what's really chilling to my mind uh, about the document is that you know it's it's a bureaucrat's document. And it's just bizarre. It's, you know, it's it's talking about um, basically the torture of of a population in a kind of an industrial uh, scale. But really the whole tone of the document is that it's a a bureaucratic or administrative um, challenge. And it's been outlined. You could imagine perhaps, you know, a supply network fellow running an, an international supply chain for, you know, a toy maker or whatever, or a car company, you know confronting all the various challenges and you have to have your, your 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 bolts and and tires arriving in Birmingham at the same time as the the windshields or else you know we lose money it's that kind of a tone so it's it's just really chilling document peter i'll bring you in here um I suspect,
0: uh, Peter, that until these detention camps became a focus of international attention in recent years, very few people in the West had ever heard of Xinjiang. Just tell us a bit about this region and its ethnic makeup, and where it is, and why has it become a? It's come to be viewed from Beijing as a, as a region that needs to be subjugated in some way.
4: Yes, Chris, it's a it's a massive province in the northwest of China. It's about four times the size of. Germany. It's it's bordered by uh, eight eight countries. There, it's that's India, Pakistan, Russia, Mongolia. There's Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, uh, there's Kyrgyzstan and uh, Tajikistan. So it's um, it's a major crossroads there in the Belt and Road. So it's strategically a very important location. Um, it's uh, very uh, very very hostile terrain in that um, a large part of it is the Taklamakan Desert. It's surrounded by very high mountains, so it's um, quite inhospitable living conditions there. As as Colin pointed out, it was it's very thinly, uh, sparsely populated uh, now. Total twenty five million. That's including now or uh, twenty odd million. So that's including ten million plus Han who've settled there in the last um, few decades. So um, it is. Um, it's a quite a remote part of china a very uh, sparsely populated um, but uh, strategically very important uh, the 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 Uyghurs make up the largest um ethnic minority and uh, but there's also uh, Kazakhs, uh, tajiks and Kyrgyz, and so on and uh, other ethnic minorities um and they account for about nearly 11 million people
0: and now i'm going to go back in a few minutes to the uh, china's if you like defense you know of these camps and 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 why it's running them and it Part of its defence is that it said this is about combating terrorism. Has there been much terrorism in that region? Have there been terror attacks?
4: Uh, there have been. Um, it's it certainly hasn't been as um, as significant as as China uh, portrays it. But um, certainly in 2009 there have been race riots. There's a, a lot of ethnic tension there between um, between the the Uyghurs particularly and the Han Chinese. And there were riots in 2009 that uh, ended up in in almost 200 people uh, dying. 2014 saw three big attacks, uh, in, uh, two in train stations, one in a market, um, and two of the attacks, more than 30 people died. They were, that was kind of the, the high point of the, um, of the terrorist attacks. And that was the particular year that uh, we've, we find out um, subsequently that uh, Xi Jinping decided to really clamp down on
0: the area. So what's the history then of the detention camps? When did they start operating this policy?
4: They really I think it was two thousand and fourteen to two thousand and sixteen They started in a small scale, really ramped up then in 20, 2017. Uh 2016, of course you had to move uh, the um, the governor of the province is, um, is, is Chen Chuang Guo. he previously uh, ran Tibet with a, an iron fist and then he moved there in two thousand and sixteen by two thousand and seventeen he started this uh, this campaign to uh, build these um, these uh, internment camps all across the province. And, uh, they, uh, and we, we saw those sprouting up and those investigations and news started trickling out in early 2017. And Peter, our listeners will remember
0: that you visited these camps as recently as July. Uh, as a guest of the Chinese government, which of course is the only way you're going to get get to see them. How much freedom were you given to investigate the activities there? And, and can you remind us, you know, what you found there and what you saw?
4: Yes, we were brought on one of those sort of carefully choreographed tours that the government has um, Put on recent months, of course, as a reminder that for the first year or so, they they totally um, denied their, these camps, uh, the, their existence of these camps at all, and then they changed tack. Uh, then uh, uh, some maybe about a year ago, to say they did exist, but they were they were uh, vocational and training centres, and that they were there to have uh, job creation centres essentially, but they also had an element of. Um, of uh, de-radicalization. so they did invite uh, journalists. They invited some diplomats and so to, to go and have a look. Now we um, we weren't allowed to pick up all the f- many. We don't know. There's no clear information about exactly how many camps there are in the province. But we weren't allowed to pick which camps we went to. We were brought to select camps, which we presume were sort of model camps. And uh, obviously, you were brought in there with the Public, secu- public Security Bureau and uh, brought around and uh, shown these these uh, camps. Um, and we were allowed to interview several of the people who were who were staying there. Um, so we had sort of uh, freedom to discuss with people. But of course, uh, there was um, these people were presumably under under duress, and they all had, as I wrote at the time, um, everybody that we spoke to said. Um, very keenly that they were there on a voluntary basis and they all had their story as to why they were there um, and they all sounded extremely familiar stories and wrote learned um, stories that they parroted back to anybody who would ask. And what kind of things did they it, did it tell you, Peter? You said
0: that you had the impression things were rote learned, but what kind of stories did they give you? The, the detainees
4: they would all say that their their brains had become infected by by radical Islam that they had um, cr- uh, committed crimes that they were now uh, uh, deeply they deeply regretted uh, crimes such as they might have uh, watched videos of of, of um, you know that, are, that supported sort of uh, maybe um, um, extreme Islam or uh, maybe advocated uh, terrorism or some or some way? They all um, f- said that they um, they were naive. They didn't uh, appreciate um, the, the their criminal ways. Uh, but now, thanks to the Communist Party and thanks to the the, um, the teachers in the in these centres, that they had now seen the error of the ways and they were now mending them, and they were on a new path to uh, to a brighter life. And was there anything then,
0: Peter, in these new leaked documents that surprised you, or what stood out for you?
4: Well, these leaked documents, they're just adding these, uh, they're, they're filling in the picture, this puzzle that, that we've, been, we've been sort of looking at, for, which has been such an opaque sort of picture for so long. So they're really adding details to something that uh, has been sort of long suspected, but uh, evidence was missing. I think some of the things that really uh, struck me were th- things like the fact that um, 12,000 investigations have been undergoing into, into government officials who haven't been imposing these policies of repression sufficiently. So that there's been pushback among officials in, across the province, and um, and the government is really um, forcing them to to ensure that they're all adhering to this, as Colin referred to this sort of strict quota system that they have. To ensure that uh, at every very very low level that these targets have been met, and then we have we meet where we meet characters essentially like uh, China's uh, Oscar Schindler. In this case, it's uh, Wang Yongzhu, who we re- we read who initially was no hero and he spent 180 million dollars building two camps and put 20,000 people into these camps uh, very quickly. But then started started to have um, second thoughts. Thought it would exacerbate the racial t- racial tensions. So then, And, and uh, thought it would also um, slow down the economic growth of the area, which is one of his other uh, targets, uh, his work targets. So he released uh, 7,000 of these um, detainees and later suffered the consequences. Now in prison, he's, just, he's in disgrace and so on, purged from his position. So uh, those kind of details have been fascinating. Peter, I'm going
0: to come back to you in a moment about how China is likely to respond in the the medium to longer term to the publication of these documents. But the first column, you got a response to the story from the Chinese ambassador to Ireland, and he denied these are detention camps and, and defended their operation. And on Monday night, the BBC Panorama programme carried a response from China's ambassador to the UK.
2: My name is Richard Bilton. I'm a reporter for BBC Panorama. I wrote to you this week, sir, actually, about the camps in Xinjiang. Uh, I know that they are prison camps. Why won't you tell me the truth about those camps? First of all,
3: I have to say there's no so-called labor camps, as you describe our question. There's um, uh, what we call vocational education and training centers. They are there for the prevention of a terrorist.
2: With respect, I sir, I have seen, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have seen the orders that are sent to the prison camps, and they are prison. What
3: order you have? You the, mean the order said this is a prison
2: camps? They are orders for the people who run the camps and they're quite no, clear that this, this, is is a a sheer, this is
3: a prison camp. is a pure so fabrication. It,
2: it's true and uh, they are brainwashing you. What camps. What is happening? They change the way people behave, what they believe, even the language they speak. So they are brainwashing camps, aren't they? I
3: think there's no such order for prison camps. You know, in Xinjiang,
2: religious freedom is fully respected. Just, just to be clear, the documents I've seen make it quite what clear that people are held there, hundreds of thousands of people are held in these camps across Xinjiang. What you're telling me bears I'm no relation to what I've seen. What you, the document,
3: so-called document you're talking
2: about is pure fabrications.
3: Don't listen to fake news. Don't listen to fabrications.
0: So, Column China says these are not detention camps, they're education facilities the goal is to prevent terrorism in the region where there have been terrorist attacks. Do you think that defence
3: stands up to scrutiny in light of what's in these documents? In a strange kind of way, yes. Um, because there are white papers available and people can read them if they want, published by the Chinese government. And um, they they use different terminology. and But you can see that, that it amounts to the same thing. Whereas the documents we um, published on Sunday have things in them like you mustn't allow escapes so you can't say that people are in there uh, um, uh, voluntarily voluntarily, and they say that um, you know people have to do x y and Z before they get out they have to be in there for at least a year they have to undergo ideological transformation they can be disciplined there are different areas of strictness so because you have this bureaucrat giving these orders you can work out in your own mind well this looks like a concentration camp and it's a re-education and the Orwellian type of uh, of, of idea. That's that's exactly what you're talking about. But if you lo- look at the Chinese government's white papers, they're they're kind of the same, but they just have different terminology. Now, they don't tell you people aren't allowed to escape, but they say that all these people are, are these institutions being put in place to to, to as a preemptive strike against. Um, Attitudes that might, in time, turns into separatist or or extremist religious views and so on. And what's really bizarre about it, I suppose, is with there were terrorist attacks and there is a anti Han Chinese sentiment in, in the province, but the scale of the response is just, you know, it's hard to, it's really you have to work hard to try to imagine it. It's like, you know, it's just so, to our minds, it's just so completely uh, out of proportion and so cruel. So all these people are put in these camps. We now know there's, there's organized messages for what the families are told. We know there's villages out there that are half empty, three quarters empty. And the children are being put in orphanages, separated from their parents. And they don't know when they're going to be reunited. Then they're having to live in these orphanages, li- speaking a different language, without any religious service, without any connections perhaps to their families, unless they you know, the families perform. I mean, it's, the cruelty involved is, is absolutely stunning. We heard
0: the Chinese ambassador to the UK there referring to suggesting that people's religious freedom is protected. Now, there was one particular court case actually you reported on where where a man got a very
3: heavy sentence, which, again, seems to contradict that assertion. That's right. And and if I could just say in advance of that, the, the, the... There are people in these orphanages, uh, children in the orphanages, and then the people in the educational centers. And apparently there's a a separation of church and state in the educational system in China in law. So people are not allowed to have religious services once they're in these camps, and they're in the camps indefinitely. But then, uh, unless they undergo ideological transformation. So that looks like religious repression. And then one of the documents we got was a court judgment, a county court, three judges of this poor man in his 50s, who had been educated from the Uyghur community, edu- educated up to the end of primary, and he's working on a, what looked like a road unit, and they were staying in the uh, road construction unit, they were staying in workers' dorms, and he was accused of and pleaded guilty to uh, inciting religious uh, extremist uh, uh um, sentiment and the, the the substance of the charge was that he'd encourage his co-workers not to be looking at pornography to say their prayers before meals to to uh, not having um dealings with the kafir uh, or non-religious uh, Han Chinese who you know at meal times and so on and uh, told him that Allah wouldn't be happy with them if they didn't say their prayers you know and for that he got 10 years in jail you quoted one expert. I think. And, in, sorry, I'm just yes, going to just ahead. make make it clear. So you got 10 years in jail. That's not the camps. The camps are people. People are just being put in these camps for you know not watching television or yes, having a beer. It's not recognised. Yeah. These are yeah. jail yeah. sentences. Yeah. Then separately, there are people being jailed, and the, the population of Xinjiang is about one to one and a half percent of the entire Chinese population. But the figures that are available publicly show it accounts for about 20 percent of all criminal convictions so that's a separate flow of people into incarceration in jails where the conditions are really harsh compared to the internment camps Your piece highlights the fact that there's a
0: big cultural and philosophical gulf if you like between the, the ethnic you know, the Uyghur community in Xinjiang and and Chinese, a Chinese communist view of the world. Can you just talk a bit about that? That's, that's something that's, it's reflected in your in your reporting on this.
3: Yes, um, there, there was there's an Irish uh, an Irishman, David O'Brien, who's an academic out in Germany, has lived in and and spent a long time studying uh, Xinjiang, and he, he says what you have on one side is you, you know an ethnic group with their own culture, their own language, and, uh, uh, and belief in Islam, and on the other side you have Marxist materialists, and their view is that. If you improve people's uh, material circumstances, that they get happier. And that's the kind of an argument that, that trumps all others. And so therefore, this is a good thing. And and the people, ethnic people in Xinjiang, will ev- eventually be appreciative because they'll improve their material conditions. And indeed, when I spoke with the Chinese ambassador to Dublin, um, he made the same point. He said, "You know, the, China is becoming richer. We're industrializing. There's great economic growth going on. These people are isolated from that because they speak a different language, have a different culture. So if we transform them into better-educated people who speak uh, China, Mandarin, um, they can partake of the um, the economic growth. They'll be richer. Therefore, they'll be happier, and they'll be less inclined to t- towards uh, terrorist views or separatist views."
0: Peter, you've lived in China for a long time. What do you
4: think? You think of that view that uh, column quoted there? Yes, it seems. Uh, certainly, there is that. There is that a uh, huge schism there, and uh, it's it seems to be um, ever growing. The the um, Uyghurs here have been long discriminated against in 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 Han China. They would often be referred to as uh, criminals or. or um, In some sort of pejorative manner. so uh, there is often they they rarely mix, um, and um, in in the province, but certainly outside the province, they very they very much don't mix don't mix either, uh, when when uh, Uyghurs are in the other parts of China. So uh, there is um, certainly um, the 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 two are are, um, have sort of very sort of testy relations.
0: Peter, I know you were just back in mainland China, having been in Hong Kong uh, reporting for us from there but um it's probably a very naive question is there any coverage of this story in china is anybody talking about it
4: And uh, not the uh, leaks of 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 the papers no occasionally um xinjiang does uh, appear in the media but um normally normally just to um uh, reinforce the uh, the government view that the uh, they are um they are orchestrating these deradicalization programs and they're making um, the uh, Xinjiang a more stable and a more prosperous place by the day and that the Uyghurs are greatly appreciative of of these efforts.
0: And how do you think the Chinese authorities will respond in the longer run to this leak? Will the international outcry have any impact on the government's thinking or approach?
4: Well in the short term now we've got um, you know, the the foreign ministry yesterday said this was uh, th- these reports were slanderous it was a smear campaign conducted by um, by the hostile forces against um, them and they said the best response to um, to these uh, this smear campaign would be to present a stable and a prosperous Xinjiang um, and that would uh, keep people internationally quiet um, recently, they have got a lot more assertive. What with this, as, as all of these leaks have come out and people have really been been able to paint um, a fairly clear picture of what's going on. Now, there's there's they there as the white paper um, that that uh, column refers to there says they're kind of becoming more open with it. They're using slightly different language, but uh, more often now they're saying yes, we are doing this to um, attack counter-terrorism and radical, uh, radical activity, and the rest of the world should follow our suit because this is what uh, you will appreciate this in the long term. Peter, in Chengdu and Colum
0: here in Dublin, thank you both very much. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.
1: You know, consulting firms are like onions
0: layer after layer after layer after layer you just don't get the answer or the person you need you just get irritation ready for an approach with less bureaucracy welcome
1: to grant thornton audit tax and advisory it's not status quo it's status go